Jason, I keep telling you to pick your things up off the table. I'll get it, Dad. The following is an in-depth analysis. If you haven't seen this movie, you might want to before watching this review. I don't think I ever read a single Thor comic growing up. In fact, I'm not sure I read a solo Thor adventure prior to starting Walt Simonson's run last year, where I finally developed an appreciation for the character and began to realize the appeal. While I must confess this movie, while entertaining, wasn't enough to entice me to plunge into his comic books, I certainly appreciated what I was looking at a lot more when I finally did delve into Thor comics than if I'd never seen it. Thor isn't a traditional superhero. He's a super being who exists in a world of superheroes, and fighting along other godlike beings is the best way for him to fit in amongst the mortals of Midgard, but also to do the thing he discovers he loves most, using his godhood to protect those who can't protect themselves. Folks who know me know I'm not a fantasy guy. Sword and sorcery usually doesn't do it for me, but I become a little taken with this lore and mythology. Asgard is a majestic, breathtaking, imaginative world originally rendered by the always inventive Jack Kirby. I've come to appreciate the differences in the morality and philosophies of a warrior culture versus our own, which is why I think it's fun to see these gods perpetually fixed in another, simpler time with a culture that never seems to change mixing with the constantly evolving technological world we live in. What makes Thor an endearing character is that he's a god who finds a balance between being a god and a man, a little bit like Superman. He acknowledges his power and doesn't hold it back just because it might make regular people nervous or jealous, and he uses it to help people without power. He's not concerned with worship or being seen as better than mortals. Thor relishes the glory of battle. He's naturally full of himself, but even though he revels in praise, he makes his fighting about protecting and not destroying. At least, once he's been through his initial character arc. I like Odin's line at the beginning of this film, when Thor is nearly crowned king. He calls the hammer a weapon to destroy or a tool to build. Thor's weapon is the embodiment of the choice all people in authority have, to be benevolent or malevolent. Characters like Thor or Hercules, born out of the traditional epic narratives of classic mythology in comics, bridge the gap between the epic hero and the superhero. By mixing these characters, we gain a better understanding of both where these larger-than-life titans came from in our literary consciousness and why they've endured for so long. Thor is both a superhero movie and a mythical epic, though not nearly epic enough for my taste, suffering the same fate as the first X-Men film. I like the way the universe is realized, there are some intriguing ideas and characterizations, but it mostly serves as a really expensive introduction to a world that you'd hope to see really fleshed out later, now that you've been through the Asgard 101 lecture. It's a superhero origin story, but within the trappings of a royal family drama, which makes it a lot more worthy of an origin to be filmed than other heroes I wish would just skip that part and get on with the interesting stuff. There's a huge difference between four people go up into space, get irradiated, and get superpowers, and an heir to a divine throne of a godlike and practically immortal people proves himself unworthy of his power and must regain his family's trust. The second thing doesn't even sound like a superhero origin. It sounds like a Shakespearean play. Maybe that's why Kenneth Branagh was tapped to direct, and why so many people were surprised by how much more superhero this felt than Shakespearean. Fans had their hopes set too high if they expected an incredibly cerebral, nuanced, art house sort of feel, but I must admit I expected a far greater emphasis on the formal, lavish society of Asgard than on an earthbound romance. 
As always, I'm not here to rewrite movies. This is the story of how being exiled to Earth leads Thor to an opportunity for change where he develops into a more reasonable hero and potential leader. So to say the problem with this movie is Thor goes to Earth would be unfair. I would criticize it for not spending enough time fleshing out the situation on Asgard, especially Odin's choice to make Thor king right now, and Loki and Thor's rivalry, all of which were established but too glossed over. And although Sif and the Warriors 3 are on screen more of the time than I remembered them the first time I watched it, to an uninitiated audience I imagine they're somewhat interchangeable, besides the token archetypal character traits. Sif is the no-nonsense one, Volstag is the big lovable oaf with a huge heart, etc. It's a little like Green Lantern. We're introduced to a fascinating world, but we don't spend nearly enough time exploring it, as if we have to spend the majority of our time on Earth in order for lowly human beings to find anything to relate to. Before I saw the film and made the gross assumption that because Branagh was directing, surely it would be set exclusively on Asgard, I hoped Thor and Captain America the First Avenger would be companion pieces, in having both take place primarily in an unfamiliar time or setting, and then the superhero catches up to the Marvel status quo established in Iron Man and Incredible Hulk. But there are plenty of good reasons to put Thor on Earth. Had it been fully Asgard-centered, Thor would essentially have to be re-established in Avengers to, well, the Avengers, and also S.H.I.E.L.D., and we'd have to spend precious screen time with a bunch of exposition to catch up characters who are just now being introduced to Thor when the audience is already aware of these things. Plus, what this movie accomplishes for the greater Marvel Cinematic continuity is establishing the supernatural and fantastic that has yet to have reared its head in either of the Iron Man's or Incredible Hulk, which is handled quite nicely in the way it involves S.H.I.E.L.D. and its attempt at controlling things and people way out of its league. And while we could have conceivably met Thor in this world after he was already worthy of his hammer, showing us that arc on Earth and through Thor's relationship with humans makes him automatically vested in what happens to them in Avengers. This may be the Marvel movie to date that struggles most with telling its own story while establishing a foundation for Avengers. Thor is a beautifully realized world that isn't bashful in the slightest about its comic book roots. A lot of fans expected a toned-down version with more muted and darker costumes and less pomp and circumstance, but Thor, Loki, Odin, and the others are practically straight off the page. Asgard has the fanciful, wonder-inspiring look of the comics, and I'm especially impressed with the clever interpretation of the Rainbow Bridge, which is maybe the most memorable image in the film. It also looks like the easiest final course in the history of Mario Kart. That was the thing I was most curious about going in the first time because I couldn't figure out how in the world you could make a filmable rainbow bridge. The glass look is striking, and I love that when people walk across it, it lights up under their feet. Asgard looks like the vast and opulent kingdom it should, but the only problem is it doesn't look lived in. We're treated to these massive CGI shots taking us through this world, and it looks almost deserted. The only time it feels like there's anyone in the city besides Odin, Frigga, and Sif and the Warriors 3 is at the ceremony at the very beginning and a couple minutes right at the end. But along with that well-realized vision of Kirby's Asgard is, I think, a consistent vernacular amongst the Asgardians. I like that the way they speak is formal and old-fashioned, but the movie isn't trying to impress anyone with an overabundance of archaic word choice. It doesn't sound dumbed down for a general audience, and yet the choice not to gum up every sentence with unnecessary these and thous, as it sometimes reads in the comics, helps the dialogue sound natural, and it doesn't alienate anybody, so that an audience isn't even thinking about it. 
While there are certainly some great moments with these human characters, and while the movie does a reasonably decent job of convincing me Thor has a vested interest in keeping Jane, Selvik, and Darcy safe, but Darcy only by extension, really, those characters are, for the most part, just serviceable in the greater scheme of the story, concocting a reason to make Thor worthy of his hammer and title. I don't dislike these people, but I don't find any of the three complex or engaging in their own right, outside of their relationship with Thor. There's no Lucius Fox or Pepper Potts or Abe Sapien here. Now sure, it's Thor's movie. I don't need these people to form an ensemble cast where each gets his own fully fleshed out character arc and is a protagonist of his own accord. I just mean that even as supporting characters, they all seem pretty routine. The scientist girlfriend to the magical hero is here to create the opposites attract dynamic. You've got the protective father mentor figure in Selvik and the comic relief in Darcy. Each of them serves his or her function well, but doesn't go any farther than that at all. And I'm giving these characters more credit than a lot of the film's detractors many of whom say Natalie Portman's Jane is only into Thor because he's hot and that Darcy is irritating and ruins every scene she's in. I'll actually go as far as to say I think Hemsworth and Portman are bordering on a Reeve Kidder sort of chemistry on screen. Thor's charm is infectious and Jane, an otherwise totally independent, proactive, risk-taking, spunky woman, is completely taken in by Thor's warmth, his old-worldness, and a refreshing chivalry. But I think most of that comes from the actor's performances and less from the material on the page. And I like the idea that each makes the world a fuller place for the other, and by the end, neither can imagine his or her world without the other in it. Thor comes to appreciate humans as equals after living among them as one of them, and Jane, as a curious scientist, has a new sense of wonder about the nature of the universe as she realizes that it's bigger than she thought it was and that she understands far less of it than she thought she did. Because as Thor puts it, he lives in a place where science and magic are the same. Side note, that line sounds great, but I have no idea what it really means. Is it that the laws of physics are so different there that they can't be quantified, or that Asgardians have a clearer understanding of the physics in both worlds and that a lot of their science would look like magic to humans, but they really have it all figured out? Anyway, that's all pretty romantic. By the end, since Thor has to destroy the Bifrost to prevent Loki from committing genocide against the Jodenheimians, Okay, I'll go back to calling them frost giants. They've both lost access to each other, and by extension, this new part of the world that makes them more complete. And I should be more sad for both of them than I am, but their romance doesn't seem solid enough, beyond the way the actors are making convincing googly eyes at each other. As with the stuff on Asgard, the pieces are all there, there's just not enough detail on them individually to add enough to the greater whole. I don't even mind the ancient cliché of girl hits guy with a car so she falls in love with him here. It's turned on its head because that's usually a really shallow sort of relationship where the girl feels sorry for the guy and nurses him back to health and falls for him as a charity case and not any of the things that build a strong foundation for a relationship. But that's not the case here. She's fascinated by this guy because she keeps hitting him with a car and he gets right back up. I keep pointing out what's working with this romance, so why am I not fully invested in it? I think I'm just not seeing these two sharing enough relationship-building moments together. It's like the spark is there, and they've been through a lot of good times and bad times together, but they only showed me the Cliff's Notes version. They're really not a bad couple, but I can see where the criticism of it being totally routine and kind of generic comes from. 
Thor discovers he and Selvik are surprisingly kindred spirits. Both are fascinated by the other's foreign, exotic worlds, demonstrated with Thor in the curious and delighted way he experiences human culture, and Selvik in his nostalgic for Norse mythology, which he enjoyed studying as a child. And that's maybe a little convenient, but not an altogether ridiculous coincidence. He's a well-learned and thoughtful man, so I could see that in his background. What's a lot more convenient is that when he's in the library, he just happens to be standing next to a cart of books with one all about Norse mythology sitting right on top so he can think twice about whether Thor might actually be telling the truth about who he really is. Verily I say, what be the odds? How hard would it have been to conceive a situation where he goes to that library deliberately to reacclimate himself with that mythology? Anyway, let's go back to my high school comparison exercise. Both are fierce protectors of their families or close friends, sometimes to a fault. While Thor is quick to pick ill-advised fights in the name of saving his home, Selvik makes it clear in the bar when he drinks with Thor that he wants him out of town, and he's willing to put his own well-being at risk if it means keeping Jane out of danger. After Thor's presence has gotten them in trouble with S.H.I.E.L.D. and severely set back Jane's scientific research about the interdimensional gateway to Asgard. He is as passionate about and talented in his science as Thor is in his skill in battle. I think Selvik is actually the most fully realized character of the three of them, but like Jane, I'm not sure how interesting he is except in his relationship with Thor. And Darcy is the wisecracking sidekick who is literally just along for the ride. And she's not the sort of comic relief that I come to be emotionally invested in, despite that being their initial function. I care about what happens to C-3PO and R2-D2, and Darcy's not quite Jar Jar Binks because I actually laughed at a lot of her jokes. The reason she's there situation-wise makes sense. She's Jane's student intern. But there's not a close bond between them like there is between Jane and Selvik, although even that's talked about more than we get to see it. Again, I don't find her annoying so much as pointless. Like Felicity Smoke in Arrow, she's a character who points out the obvious in ways I wouldn't have thought about it and makes it funny. Like, I'm not dying for six college credits. And I don't know why, but I bust up every time she calls Molnir Meow Meow. I heard Stan Lee say in an interview with Kevin Smith once that he used to get letters from people asking how Molnir is pronounced, and he told people they could pronounce it any way they want to. So I guess according to Stan Lee, Meow Meow is an acceptable pronunciation. Ironically, Darcy has what the other two human supporting characters are lacking in, but then she doesn't have what they have. She has a little more personality than they do, but she's not essential to the plot or even the tone of the film. Movies don't need a character whose only function is to make the audience laugh. Great characters usually can provide a little of their own levity, and Thor is one of those. He's already doing that. Thor is hilarious throughout, not in a gimmicky way. When I'm laughing at something Thor does, it's within a natural context, inherently coming from the situation of a god-made mortal and thrown into a culture he doesn't understand. He's an alien struggling to adapt to strange customs, like Mork from Orc or the family in Third Rock from the Sun, except this is well-integrated comedy inside a dramatic narrative, rather than a farcical sitcom meant to only capitalize on that. I laughed when he smashes his mug on the floor to celebrate his enjoyment of his beverage and the fact that he ate a whole box of Pop-Tarts, because for whatever reason, Pop-Tarts are always funny, and that image is probably far more amusing in my head, getting to imagine it, than it ever would have been visualized on screen. And I love the gag of Thor going to a pet store looking for a horse and asking for a dog or a cat big enough to ride. The reaction from the clerk behind the counter is priceless. This isn't a movie that needs to fish for jokes. Thor is a naturally light and fun character. It also helps that he sees the humor in a lot of these situations himself. 
I think it's silly that Thor lands in New Mexico. It's a cute reference to alien conspiracy theories and maybe fun to hypothesize that the Roswell incident was actually Norse gods out for a jaunt in Midgard and that what's in Area 51 is something from Asgard. But wouldn't you expect the Bifrost to take you to, I don't know, Scandinavia, where Norse mythology developed, presumably because people there had run-ins with these real beings that seemed like gods. Maybe it doesn't only let out in one place, but then why were the Asgardians so partial to Vikings that that's where they spent so much of their time? And if Odin had his pick of where to send Thor, why did he send him to New Mexico, of all places? I guess because they speak English there, and eventually he's going to be an Avenger, so he needs to meet some S.H.I.E.L.D. agents? How convenient. I also can't help but wonder if Asgardians just quit visiting Earth for a long time, and why? Since obviously nobody in this universe believes in gods or Asgard prior to Thor's exile. But the idea I really latched onto with Thor's banishment to Earth is that gods and humans each have something to teach the other. We see this idea played out mostly through Thor's interaction with Jane, but also with S.H.I.E.L.D. Thor comes to realize that human beings are no different psychologically or emotionally from Asgardians. They're fallible, they try to protect their own and often do awful things with good intentions. All S.H.I.E.L.D. is trying to do is protect their country from a potential alien threat when they contain Thor's hammer and violate Jane's rights to her own research. They do the wrong things for the right reasons, like Thor did when he attacked Jotunheim. But there's a foolish arrogance to each. S.H.I.E.L.D. and Thor both think they know what's best for their people, but they're not nearly experienced or knowledgeable enough to make the calls they're making. The difference, of course, is that there are direct consequences to Thor's mistakes. S.H.I.E.L.D. just holds an artifact they can't hang on to as soon as Thor proves himself worthy and gives back some stolen equipment when they find out Thor's a good guy and the hammer belongs to him. Thor learns about the depths of his own morality from the humans, and the humans learn that there are things in the universe more powerful than they can possibly control. I like the juxtaposition of a god learning to see himself less like one, while human beings are just discovering there is such a thing. Coulson would probably love to hang on to that research, but he knows picking a fight with somebody who can control thunder and lightning is a really bad idea. Both Thor and S.H.I.E.L.D. are put in their place through this experience, but it's not until the Avengers that S.H.I.E.L.D. will pay for its arrogance the way Thor almost does here. Being forced to be on equal footing with lowly mortals gives Thor a new appreciation for the consequences of his actions and the sanctity of life. I like that there's a lot of evidence that Thor is naturally a caring and considerate person in the way he respectfully agrees to Selvig's request that he leave town the next day without hesitation, and little things like when he prepares breakfast for his new human friends. I don't think all of that is because he's being forced through an inorganic character arc. Thor's arc is about growing up as much as anything. I think he simply needed to be reminded that while humans might look at his life on Asgard as a beautiful, perfect fantasy, the realities of war are as profound and terrible as they are on Earth, even if the laws of physics are different between them. I see Thor as a man who is overconfident because he saw no reason not to be. He's totally unrealistic in the way he views himself and the world he lives in. That's where his arrogance lies, not in a lack of empathy or an inability to care about anything but himself. Remember that he's never seen the kind of battle in his lifetime that Odin has. Thor is protecting his home by fighting all the battles he thinks he can't lose. He sees it as, he is Thor, so he will always win, because he's always won in the past. As a warrior for his kingdom, he's sent in the battle whenever his king deems it prudent. His skills lie only in how to fight, not when to. And so he's become detached from the true nature of violence, and can't recognize that when he's the one calling the shots, his impulsiveness might jeopardize his people. And so his exile isn't about learning to care about people and then making the self-sacrifice, 
sacrifice so much as it's about learning when to fight and when to negotiate, as his father had done with King Laufey of Jodenheim. Thor's head was in the clouds, and he literally had to be brought down to Earth to truly comprehend what Loki calls the burden of the throne and to make himself worthy of controlling the clouds. Sure, he has to come to care about these humans in order to learn that lesson, and his willingness to give up his own life for others is ultimately the choice deemed by the hammer as the thing that makes him worthy of its power. But it's not only about sacrifice, it's about accepting responsibility for his actions. I'm not sure he could have picked up the hammer just by jumping in front of a speeding bus to save an old lady. He has to learn that being a good leader doesn't mean being a bully which is precisely the hurdle Loki can't overcome. Thor tells Odin that the frost giants had to fear him like they did his father, and Odin sends him to Earth to learn about building instead of destroying. Fitting that he figures this out in a battle with something called the Destroyer. He's now reaping the seeds he's sown. He got himself banished from Asgard, where Loki was free to take over after Odin fell into his sleep. Admittedly, kind of convenient. If Odin had managed to stay awake, we wouldn't have had a movie. And now Loki has sent a horrible magic robot to kill these people he's found kinship with and sees himself as an equal of. Everything with Loki has happened only indirectly due to Thor's actions, but he still recognizes his responsibility. It was his terrible leadership that left him useless and vulnerable, and innocent people are about to pay for it. So Thor gives up his own life to save them, because sacrifice is the only power he has now. Loki wants him, so he offers himself and then gets pummeled by the Destroyer. By accepting that responsibility, Thor admits he was wrong. And contrast that with Loki, who blames everyone but himself for his disenfranchisement with his lot in life, and with the terrible actions he chooses to do as a result. He's unworthy of the power he craves because all he cares about is proving how worthy he is, nicely encapsulated toward the end with the image of Thor putting the hammer on top of him and his not being able to get up, because of course he is unworthy of lifting it. Thor has already proven himself the better man, and to add insult to injury, he wouldn't have if it hadn't been for the opportunity Loki himself provided Thor. In all his manipulation and duplicitous scheming, Loki dug his own grave by the end, and being trapped under the hammer he wanted so badly to be able to lift and prove that he was destined to be the rightful king of Asgard is a beautiful way to drive that point home visually. Loki is certainly the most interesting character in the film. The story integrates a lot of major tropes that come up over and over again in a lot of superhero fiction. The villain who is the opposite side of the hero's coin, and the villain who is once a trusted friend of the heroes, but their natures or their opposing ideologies are both gotten the way, and now he's taken the darker path. It's now the hero's duty to stand in the way of his old friend's evil schemes, like Lex and Clark and Smallville, Xavier and Magneto, Peter Parker and Harry Osborn, Mike Wazowski and Randall Boggs. Their relationship is similar to several biblical stories, especially Cain and Abel. Wow, I've now referenced that story two reviews in a row, and Jacob and Esau. And the way the hammer plays into the story particularly reminds me of Joseph and the coat of many colors. Joseph was given this coat by his father, and his brothers were jealous of the favoritism, so they sold him into slavery. Later, he became the king of Egypt and proved himself worthy of that favor. Loki wants the hammer not for its power, but because he wants to prove himself more worthy of the throne than Thor. It's a petty jealousy brought on by an inferiority complex. Obviously, Loki wants to be king. He wants power. He wants everyone to see him as better than his brother. But he's not corrupted simply by just greed or even an obsession with power. He and Lex Luthor are very different characters, though he has more in common with the Lex from Smallville, lusting for power in order to prove himself better than his father and to find favor with him all at the same time. A dangerous contradiction. 
There's a greater motivator at work here, and that's a feeling of inadequacy. There's something nagging at him all growing up, a feeling that he somehow doesn't measure up, especially because Odin always seems to favor Thor over him. He's always despised Thor, not because of anything he's done, really, but because Odin doesn't see him as worthy of the throne, and deep down, he can sense that he really doesn't belong there. Loki is a deceiver. He gets his kicks out of fooling people. He enjoys manipulating and confusing his peers a lot more than he would ever enjoy ruling them. So when he brought the Frost Giants to Asgard, it wasn't part of an elaborate scheme to take the throne. He was just lashing out against his brother out of jealousy, and he hoped to stave off his rule a little longer. Loki doesn't really have any aspects beyond proving his own worth. By the end, after discovering that so much of his conflicted nature and unsatisfying relationship with his father is because he's really a frost giant and truly not a rightful heir to the throne at all, his desperation for proving himself worthy of the throne, even despite all that, brings him to terrible ambitions he would never have come to on his own. And trying to carry out those plans is what proves him no better than the perceived monsters he's so badly trying to separate himself from. Ultimately, both Thor and Loki have a choice to put their personal feelings aside and do the right thing. Thor is able to do that because his compassion outweighs his arrogance. Loki can't because he spent too long feeling sorry for himself. There's a nature versus nurture theme at work, but I think nurture is winning out. Does Loki try to murder all the frost giants because it turns out he is one and he's just cold and destructive by nature? Or does he do it because he's stoked the fire of jealousy for so long he's already consumed by it? Does Thor do the right thing, because as guardians are good and noble by nature, or does he do it because he doesn't have that horrible resentment for his brother or anyone else gnawing away at him? What I love about Loki is that he really has been handed the short straw, both biologically and in his upbringing. I don't condone his actions, of course, and his logic for a genocidal scheme is totally flawed at its inception, both strategically and philosophically, but I do sympathize with him because he was never given a fair opportunity to prove himself Thor's equal. It's clear when their argument propels Odin swiftly into the Odin sleep that Loki has struck a nerve. Odin seems to be speaking the truth when he says he had good intentions for taking Loki from Laufey and raising him as his own, hoping to unite the two peoples through him. But there's truth in Loki's words when he says that Odin couldn't bear the thought of a frost giant on the throne of Asgard and that he's just another of Odin's collected relics. Obviously, it's more complicated than one extreme over the other, but Loki's feelings of being an unwanted outcast that belongs to neither realm is understandable and sad. And that brings me to Odin, who is really the big question mark of the film. He's well acted in a great casting coup by Anthony Hopkins and gets a couple of great short speeches. He gets to show his reserved presence and power rarely but effectively, especially with the line, but you're not king not yet, and in his lecture just before he cast Thor out of Asgard. I initially thought his performance was too reserved, but on my most recent viewing, I appreciated it a lot more and just felt he didn't have enough scenes with either Thor or Loki. The film is extremely cryptic about Odin in general, particularly when it comes to whether or not the film wants us to see his morality as ambiguous or not. This wouldn't be a problem if Odin simply did what he did and characters questioned it, but ultimately it was up to us to decide, but the only person who questions Odin's decisions is Loki, and I'm having a hard time not reading that last scene where Thor calls Odin a great king as anything but the film saying he's a great king like, Mufasa-level grade. I mean, Thor knows everything I know at this point, right? So Odin, in a huge conspiracy to try to force the two realms into a lasting peace, kidnaps Laufey's child, tells nobody that he's adopted, I mean, obviously Frigga would have to know that since she'd remember not giving birth to two children, and I wish there was an exchange between she and Odin about that, 
And then Odin raises Thor and Loki, sees Loki as jaded and conflicted and committed to doing nothing but mischief, but never tells him the truth. And in a flashback with Thor and Loki as children, Odin says the worst possible thing he could. Only one of you can ascend to the throne, but both of you are destined to be kings. Wow, really? You might as well break a pool cue in half and say you're having tryouts. Seriously, why would you say that if you didn't want them at each other's throats all growing up? I mean, I get what the line means. Loki is royalty and his destiny is to sit on Laufey's throne, which is why he tries to destroy Jotunheim to permanently cut himself off from that undesirable legacy. That may foreshadow a reveal for the audience, but it's an absurdly cryptic thing to say to your kids who don't know what it means and from whom you're continuing to keep that secret. The only reason Thor isn't jaded like Loki is because his father shows him favor over Loki. They both had the same upbringing, but are totally different because their father treated them differently. From where I'm sitting, it seems like Odin should take a good brunt of the blame for how his son turned out. Maybe if he'd told him the truth a lot earlier or just sucked it up and treated them equally, none of this would have happened. Then again, Loki wouldn't have shot himself in the foot and given Thor a great reason to prove himself worthy of the hammer, and once again, we wouldn't have a movie. I can't figure out why Thor can't see this. We don't have enough other insight into Odin or his history to appreciate Thor's conclusion that he's such a great king, so I've got to just assume it hasn't really sunk in yet that Loki was a kidnapped frost giant. Also, why was Odin willing to king Thor at the beginning, even though he knew he wasn't mature enough for it yet, as if Thor had just made his way over to the other side of the checkers board and Odin had no choice? I guess it's because someone needs to be ruling when he falls into the Odin sleep and Thor's next in line. Okay, that makes some kind of sense. The trouble is, the film gives the audience very little information about what the Odin sleep is and what it means. Frigga has one nearly throwaway line after he's fallen into his mystical coma that he's been staving it off for a long time, which probably explains why Thor was to be made king, but I can't be totally sure, because the film doesn't tell us what causes it or how long he's supposed to be in it. Loki says he might be in this sleep forever, but is that because it happened traumatically or because it was always unpredictable and nobody ever knows if it's temporary or permanent? And I guess he's still somewhat cosmically aware or whatever when he's in the Odin sleep because he cries when Thor seems to be dead. And when Thor destroys the Bifrost, I can't tell if Odin wakes himself up or if somehow the Bifrost being destroyed wakes him up. And then why is there no discussion at the end about when Thor will become king, when the only reason he's not right now is because his ceremony got interrupted and he was banished? Now he's proven himself worthy of the hammer, so I'd assume he's worthy of the throne too? That's tackled in the sequel, but it's left oddly hanging here. And yep, now I'm gonna complain about the hammer. Odin speaks to the hammer before he flings it into the Bifrost. He says nothing about it shooting off to wherever Thor happens to be as soon as he becomes worthy, just that whoever is worthy can pick it up. So did Odin will it to Thor from the Odin sleep, or did the hammer will itself there? Does the inscription even mean anything if it willed itself to Thor? Did it raise him from the dead, or was he not quite dead yet when it got there? Can Asgardians raise dead humans or only dead humans who used to be gods that they're turning back into humans? Odin speaks the words written on it in the comics to it like it's an incantation, and I'm glad the hammer itself seems to get what worthy means, because the only two reasons I can see that Odin would speak those words to the hammer would be to tell the hammer what the rules are, and because comics fans are expecting to hear those words. Why isn't it written in English on the side like it is in the comics? 
I mean, yeah, it doesn't have to be just like the comics. That's fine. But if you look at the toys and replicas, there's alien writing on top of it that's supposed to be that inscription. But obviously nobody on Earth can read that, so what's the point of putting it there? And we see Thor read English in the film, so we know his people both speak and read it fluently. Maybe it was decided that if the English words were on the hammer, the scenes of folks trying to pick it up which are hilarious, especially with JMS and Stan Lee, would be more awkward because they'd have to stand there and read it first, and because it would give too much credence for S.H.I.E.L.D. as to Thor's identity when they capture him. Thor is an entertaining, fun, and sometimes intriguing superhero movie. The fact that I craved so much more exploration of the world of Asgard is a credit to what was here. I think a lot of my questions about why things happen and what I'm supposed to take from them would have been answered with a tighter and more focused narrative that wasn't afraid to be a fantasy epic over a traditional superhero movie. I'm giving Thor a 2.5 out of Thor. I mean 4.